So you did the, the PD sessions with everybody initially, and then what kind of stuff are you working on now with the school? Now that it's evolved after a couple of years, yeah, I I think that it's and to be honest, and I, and I you know the people that listen to the podcast, the parents, the people that are interested in Armbre, really want them to know that we're in this inclusive, you know, style of doing things. In this episode, I sat down to chat with Augie Jones. Augie would center himself as a person of African ancestry, an educator, a coach, a father, a husband, and a privileged male. He's truly inspiring conversations at Ironbray. And today we talked about the journey we are on together to help define and declare our commitment to inclusion. I am Megan Jackson, and this is the Ironbray Academy Podcast. I didn't send you any questions, so we're totally I'm conversing. So, and I knew you'd be fine with yeah, it. We're good. So, I just wanted to start. Um, give us your journey. How did you end up at Armbre? How did you land at the school? And kind of like the journey that we're on together. Yeah, it was um, Shakira and Saz Joseph, uh, and Shakira was on parent committee group and. At the time, Steve was looking for some type of direction around EDI, whatever that meant at the time. And I think it was drawing, coming out of the George Floyd situation where a lot of schools and, and organizations were talking about that. At that point, Saj reached out to me. You know, there's always this overlap for me around education and basketball. <laughs> so Saj was a point guard at Acadia and I, I knew Saj. And so when he talked about what he was trying to do at Armbray, I was like, okay, yeah, all right. I'm interested in what you're doing. So. I came down for a kind of like a one-off presentation to the board was myself and Anne Devine. So Anne was much more comfortable doing the one-time kind of package thing. And I actually said to Steve, uh, I was kind of moving away from the one-offs. I felt that there was, I wanted to make a commitment to, to a school around inclusive education that was more long-term mm. because I felt that that was like not one PD day or two PD days. It was working on all levels. And so to be honest, Steve and I might've talked back and forth for over a year before it was anything. Mm. And it was just at the time I was the executive lead for inclusive education for the province at the department of ed. And so there were a lot of similar things going on with the public school system around inclusive education it really started as a conversation around students with disabilities and to be honest how Nova Scotia wasn't doing a great job with that that student and those parents and then it kind of spread into a conversation around okay well if if those same things are creating a negative school situation for certain children what about the LGBTQ plus student what about the Mi'kmaq student what about the newcomer student what about the African Nova Scotian student and we found a lot of similarities so as I was going through that I was always kind of bouncing back to Steve and he's going yeah we <laughs> we, we'd like, to, we're, we're on that same path, right? So at that point, I was transitioning at the point where we started to make something more solid. I was transitioning from the Department of Ed to my present job as principal of Akerley Campus, NSCC. As I moved into that job, uh, it was very much a seven o'clock in the morning till three o'clock. So we're a trade school. Most of the classes are done by three 
3 o'clock, 3.30. So I was living a different life than I was at the Department of Ed, which was pretty much, you know, late nights and it was a provincial scope. Now I had a campus scope, it was just acreage. So I had more time. And at that point, Steve said, well, why don't you, why don't we just start this off with you working with the staff and presenting the idea to the staff? So I don't know if you remember this, but I, I went into an all, like there was a virtual staff meeting and yep. I was kind of in there in a mm-hmm. weird position. Hey, I felt weird. Like, well, it's weird being in COVID. It's weird introducing new people into yeah. other community virtually. Yes. When you were you were in Halifax, and yeah, it was a it's a funny introduction. And I, and I, I think everyone kind of felt it. And it was at the end of COVID, so yeah. people were getting kind of Fatigued. tired of the Hollywood Squares thing. Yeah. So I said to Steve, "Why don't we?" I said, "This isn't going to work because I'm not going to be able to do um, any authentic work with the staff without." building relationships. And so from that point, we decided to divide up into uh, more digestible groups of the staff. And so I, I last spring, I would have done probably six sessions, 15 staff at a time. Mm-hmm. And that went really well. I did the exact same setup, introduction, inclusive ed, what was my role, exactly what I just said to you around how did I get Mm-hmm. at this point. And then I asked a question, which I thought was, I, th- I smile when I think about it. So I asked everyone in the room, I told my story of how I got an education. Mm-hmm. And then we went around the room and everyone had to kind of say who they were and how they got an education. And that's a really, I thought, effective icebreaker. Totally. Yeah. Because it changed the vibe of the room What once that happened. And everyone was kind of realizing that the common denominator, and obviously you were in one of the sessions, was that we love kids. So let's let's have that as a starting point. Yeah. And so what other... Um so you did the, the PD sessions with everybody initially, and then what kind of stuff are you working on now with the school, now that it's evolved after a couple of years? Yeah, I, I think that it's, and to be honest, and, I, and I, you know, the people that listen to the podcast, the parents, the people that are interested in Armbray, really want them to know that in this inclusive, you know, style of doing things, I don't really have an end goal. Do, do you know what I mean? I have to yeah. be honest. There's a sense of connecting with staff, connecting with parents, connecting with the board to say there's a strat plan that, that, that Steve's working on. All of that has to be integrated. So going at a slow pace, it's very much around, as I said, dealing with the staff. And then now we're doing a curriculum review, which curriculum's one area where, you know, I, I would say at this point that I think that as I've come to understand what inclusivity is as an English teacher for a long time, I, I love words. I think it's just to include. And I do have to say that it may seem simplistic, but if we think about society, society has excluded people. For, it could be with disabilities. It could be women. It could be people who are indigenous. It could be like there's a lot of exclusive policies and laws. And so I think inclusivity is the opposite of it. So when we talk about curriculum, uh, I think, you know, we talked about essential graduate learnings. So what does the grade 12 graduate want to leave with? And, and what sticks in my mind is this inclusive mind frame, like um, open to ideas, able to deal with a whole bunch of different students. Let's say you leave Armbray and you go to U of T or you go to Harvard or you go to St. of X, or you go to Dow, no matter where you go, you're going to be in an inclusive setting. So the better you're equipped to have a wider exposure, that's where I think curriculum comes in. Right. So from a math perspective, science, et cetera, we're saying, how can we include more into the curriculum? And I think our, our faculty and staff who have listened to you, it's renowned that time and time again, you always use the word inclusivity instead of using DEI. Yeah. So can you explain why you choose to focus on the wording? Like you said, you love so much. Yeah, that's 
a great question, Megan, because as we know from the politics of words, <laughs> you know, words can become saturated. Words can become these um, almost like explosive points mm. of misunderstanding, right? EDI is, people can use that term if, if they feel that that's what works for them. I just find that in my framing of if you have a room full of white people, there's diversity. If you have a room full of black people, there's diversity. If you have a room full of people all from the LGBTQ plus community, there's diversity. So the inclusive framework for me works better because it includes more. And I find that when we had the EDI session, let's say I'm, on an, I'm in an indigenous session and I'm not indigenous. There are sometimes, and this is just an example, it happens in all, it could be in a, a trans queer session. It could be an African Nova Scotian session. If you narrow that scope, there are going to be people who close down because they feel like they're not a part of the conversation and they also feel like they're being shamed or blamed or mm -hmm. things like that. And so I find when you talk about inclusivity, it's more minds open than closed. It instantly puts everybody in a more safe place, no matter where you're, you're what, no matter your background. Yeah, and I think it's a logical space too, Megan, because who am I as a person who has able-bodied privilege, heterosexual privilege, anglophone privilege? For example, I can have a public show of affection towards my wife in Halifax, hug her, kiss her, hold her hand, and not fear of random violence around me. If I'm in a same-sex couple, that public show of affection could be dangerous. So that's a privilege that I have. So I think the inclusivity or inclusive framework for me also puts me in the worker group too. I also have work to do. I, so that's uh, that's also the easing of the tension in a room. And so when you talk about inclusivity, who wouldn't say that women should be included in sciences? Women should be included in trades. Newcomers should be included. If I have a PhD, why am I driving a taxi when I get to Halifax? You know, so these are conversations that I think they're better had under the inclusive framework than the EDI framework. And right. I'm not criticizing the EDI framework. I just find that the, the funnel... Mm -hmm is wider. The conversation is wider. And, and to me, it's worked for Empathize Others, which is my consultancy company. It, it's worked to take that approach. Yeah. And in your podcast, you talk a lot about, um, you have conversations about self-confidence community um, and you reference your your parents, Rocky and Joan, who are award-winning civil rights activists, and they really instilled the value and importance of these conversations. Yeah. Um, so how would you say that your background and upbringing is reflecting in the work that you're doing now? That's another great question. Um, I was a little kid on Windsor Street beside Pilcher's Flowers, crossing the Halifax Forum, and my parents' home was this hub of activity and conversation. And I wouldn't say it was political conversation, but it was it was an equity conversation. It was a human rights conversation. And it didn't matter who was in the house. So at the time, I remember political leaders or, or you know... People that were influential like community members. Yeah, but but diverse. And and the one common denominator was you had to have thick skin. So we I, and we literally had a round table. So my mom had a round kitchen table. And for me, I was that boy that was in the background listening to the conversation and the, the multiple conversations. And, and they were you had to speak in a way that you were giving your idea, that you were listening to other people. And I, I could see conversation flowing that way. And, and I so I learned that when you're in these what people may call difficult conversations, because if you looked at it from the outside, these were crunchy conversations. <laughs> but for me as a kid, I'm looking going, OK, well, people are still there may be little ups of tension and 
two people going at it. But ultimately, there was always this almost sharing of ideas. So I think that's what I took forward as I went from Oxford Junior High School to Queen Elizabeth, and then I went to St. Evex, was I always felt that conversations that people felt were so scary weren't scary to me. Like they were, it's how do you engage them? And and also being very careful of how I engaged in it. Like that I wasn't pontificating or preaching or pretending like I knew everything. I was doing that from the time I was a teenager. So I was president of the student council at Oxford Junior High School. I was president of the student council at Queen Elizabeth just by using that formula. Right. And and I didn't know it at the time, but it was inclusive. Whether you're from the South End, because QEH was a mix of all kinds of kids from Mulgrave Park to Point Pleasant Park, right? Like it was all that. So if you were going to talk to the kids and my colleagues, my peers, you had to have this inclusive kind of lens. And I think that's when my name, when you bring up my name in Halifax, I think that there would be a diverse group of people that would go, oh, I know Augie. Like, so I, I got that from my parents, I think around, you know, I think especially my dad people would see him some people would see him as scary and you know black panther and all of these crazy things even though my name augusto means black panther he wasn't that right that's the way the media framed him Mm -hmm. and made him scary but underneath of that he was a outdoor outdoorsman fisherman country music kind of of diversity of friends and so when i see that as an example i also knew that and and i live that now my public persona is not my private persona Mm -hmm. and what you were talking about when you're family was sitting around the table like that's just an organic way that people engage and have conversations and I think the hope is that our, our the Armbrake kids are going to go home and have those same types of conversations they're going to sit there and they're going to listen and they're going to take it all in and they're also going to educate their parents who have lots to learn as well what would your advice be and or opinion on when kids go home and they're they're sitting there and they're talking about what they learned at school today whether it be on inclusivity like how do how can kids approach those conversations that might be different difficult table conversations. Yeah, I think now now you've hit at the reality of what I think school is about. So in the sense that teachers probably spend more time with other people's children than the parents do. I think that as a teacher, um, you are in a position to have conversations with you as the adult facilitating a conversation that can be scientific, can be mathematic. It could be um, obviously the social sciences and English lend them to this more, but I would rather have a conversation around sexuality with teenagers, a conversation around um, equity, a conversation around colonialism in the classroom, right? Because I'm figuring that the teacher is the person who did their batch of education. So they're a lesson plan specialist. They are, they know that relationship precedes curriculum. So I was also never an English teacher that believed in banning books. I can do To Kill a Mockingbird. I can do Catcher in the Rye because no author, think about when you get in high school and you're a teacher choosing books to do. It's not a junior high anthology of poems and little short stories. You're picking books, novels. There's not one novelist that wrote a novel for school. Mm. right so whatever book you choose there's going to be a controversy why not discuss that controversy including the n-word including holden caulfield saying dropping f-bombs like these are things that i would rather have my son or daughter have that conversation in school under a curriculum umbrella right rather than on social media Right. Rather than amongst their 14-year-old peers. Let's have a formulated discussion with a teacher who is a master at this and the peers are there watching and learning and listening as well. Like it's a 
it's a win for all parties involved to have that discussion in the classroom. I, I think it is. And that's what I was proposing to the teachers when I was speaking about what is this inclusivity thing we speak of? It's to be feel confident and safe that one, you're not the only intelligent person in the classroom. <laughs> all the other kids, the students you're teaching are also intelligent. So include their mindset, include their viewpoints, and you will actually gain points from teenagers when you listen to them, right? Yeah. Like when you dismiss them, I think we talk about um, privilege. I think there's a thing that I'm coming up with with adult privilege. Adults feel they know more than people that are younger than them. Not if you put some math problems in front of a lot of adults. They don't really know what's going on. No, and not if you put digi the digital world in front That's of them. That's right. And also, I would say that because of the way that the internet works and, and social media works, what our young people are being exposed to is not the same as 1975, is not the same as 1985 or 1995. So I, they're still young. They're still in a developmental stage. But the stimulus and ideas that are constantly being thrown at them that are exposed to them with the press of a button. We didn't have that. So we also, in the, in this discussion of inclusivity, is not only including the student, but meeting this Gen Z, I don't know what we're calling them, but meeting them where they're at. So for example, they don't know what a payphone is. They don't know how to use a phone book. Thank you. They don't know how to use a rotary phone. Like, but we did, I didn't know stuff that my parents were doing in the forties and fifties. Right. So we have to remember that like I'm 54 years old. When I was 17, there's not a 54 year old on the planet that could tell me anything. <laughs> like, you know, so as adults, we go into the classroom with this privilege, like we're the ones that are carrying all the knowledge and we're not. And so it's not only including and honoring what the students bring, but allow those crunchy topics conversations and you don't need to have the answers it's not a sitcom you don't have to have the answer on the hour like when the bell rings you don't need to have the answer it's probably more beautiful not to have the answer right so the students have to think about stuff i even think with what you're doing at armbray like you said that you don't know where we're going to end up with this there's not a road map that says, okay, you're going to do this, this, and this, and then, then we're going to end up at this result. So it's the same thing with these kids. The open-endedness is, it's beautiful. The fact that we are able to have these conversations and get to different places, but there's not, there's not an end answer. No, you're exactly right, Megan. And I think that, yeah, we have curricular outcomes that we have to get to. What does a person have to get to in grade 10 math? And like, it builds on itself. We know that. But I think what's really stuck, and I think this is where that EDI conversation started was, okay, there's some scary conversations going on at school and we don't know how to handle them. And I think educators in 2023 have to be comfortable saying you can facilitate the conversation and there's ways to do that. But you didn't need to have the answer, right? I don't, with my 15 year old, I have very few answers. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> But I, I, I've come to terms with that. I think that when I grew up in the 80s, it was a different type of parenting. And I was, I think we were, kids were meant to be seen and not heard. Like you didn't involve yourself in adult conversations. This isn't where we are right now. And so I think meeting the students where they're at is also part of this inclusive education approach. We are going for a short break. And when we come back, Augie will talk more about inclusion, power of privilege, how to navigate the crazy world of adolescence, and we're also going to find out what makes Augie tick by answering the question, what is his why? Armbray's commitment to equality and inclusion is rooted in the need to ensure that every child is known, heard, and valued. Belongingness and kindness are the hallmarks of the Armbray experience. To read our strategic plan, visit armbray.ns.ca. 
At the beginning of our conversation, you mentioned that we're embarking on the strategic plan. And one of our main pillars is the fact that we are committing to um, equality and inclusion. And that's part of our root in our strategic plan. And so I think for a lot of people, Ironbray has been a place of, that they feel belonging, they feel at home, they feel safe. And so my question is, how are we able to, in your eyes, how can we broaden that to other community members, other members in the Indigenous community, the LBGTQ+, our African Nova Scotian communities? Like, how are we able to ensure that they feel the same way? Yeah, I think this is where my consulting, like, what am I doing? What's my value to, to Steve and the team? And, and I think it's that viewpoint. I think that the more you diversify and bring, because people can be safe. Like, for example, if I'm around people that look like me, think like me and talk like me, I'm usually in a safe environment, but yet that's a narrow environment. And so I think what we want to bring to students in their inclusive look at the world is that you are going to be around a lot of people in your life that don't think like you, that don't look like you that don't talk like you. And the more that they can get feel, so it's spreading out your comfort zone. So what you call safe is not a narrow circle anymore. What you call safe is, I could be in a Mi'kmaq community and feel safe. I could be on Gladysen Street and feel safe. I could be at a celebration of Asian culture and feel safe. Uh, I could be at a event for trans and queer youth and feel safe. I think that's it. it it's and I and I bring two things that I often talk to Steve about. Students have to know themselves, and the more they know themselves, the more they can know others. And and that may sound simplistic, but the more I age and the more I know about myself, the better husband I am, the better parent I am, the better principal I am. Uh, Like it's an inward, outward thing. And so we often are giving adults and youth these outward things that they should do to connect with black people and to collect with queer people. And I don't think that's the answer. I think that's, that's a secondary answer. I think primarily you have to come to terms and unapologetically own your power and your privilege and own the things that are not so powerful in your life, but also own the things that are powerful. And I think we all have a little bit of both. And so when we do that, then the more I own my male privilege, aka I don't need to jog with one earbud in. I don't need to go to the bathroom in groups. I lived in Kingston, Jamaica for a year by myself. Why? Because I'm a six foot one, 220 pound male, right? That there's something to that. I can, I can own that able-bodied privilege. I've never met a building in my life that I couldn't get into. Yeah. You can climb the stairs. Elevator, you can open escalator, the door. everything I can handle. And, but see, these are things where we've, we've, privileges come out as being a bad word. But it's actually a reality that someone who has physical disabilities looks at buildings differently. When women jog, they jog differently. They go to the bathroom differently. They interact at work differently. And so the more I own my stuff, the more I can hear the voices of women more clear. The more I own myself, my stuff as a settler in Mi'kma'ki. This is Mi'kma'ki. This is not my, if anything of African descent, my homeland is Africa, mm. right? So when I'm in Mi'kma'ki, if I accept that I'm a settler, then I can hear indigenous voices much more clear. So I guess that's the part of the, I guess the long answer, Megan, is that this sense of belonging and comfort, we just want to like an elastic, spread it out. And we're doing our students a service if we do that, because that means that when they get that scholarship to go post-secondary anywhere globally, they have the skills and the mindset, the stretchability, the neuroplasticity to be able to handle themselves in wherever they land. Rather than a narrow existence, they have this wide existence and, and perspective 
perspective that will lead to resilience and let them go to London, England and handle the whatever tough times they go through in comfort and belonging, they can get through it. They can get through it in BC, but they could also get through it in Sydney, Cape Breton. Wherever they go, they've got this inclusive mindset that there's difference out there and I've got to be able to know myself in order to blend into the difference. Right. And we talked about upbringing in the 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s. It looks a lot different than it is right now. So when you are speaking to young people, what are some of the things that you suggest and recommend? And what are some like words of advice that you give to these kids to kind of help them get through their, their adolescence? The thing that comes to mind, I think, is to, to be a learner. Um, so when you have a friend who's 14, 15 and they're sitting talking to you or, you know, we all have our comfort zones and I think learning comes out of our comfort zone because when we hang around with the same kids that we've known for five, six years, we're not learned, like we get closer with them, but we don't learn a whole lot. It's when we add another person to that group who's from the Ukraine, right? So that, that opening up and listening and being a learner is, is I think a beautiful skill to have because I often use a Buddhist proverb of having your cup empty and having it not. Right. And so when your cup is full, you can't put anything in it. Right. So oftentimes in, in that metaphor, you come to a situation, someone's talking to you and your cup's full. Like you already you're thinking of your comeback while the person's talking. Right. But yet when you empty your cup, I think that there's a way of even a teenager. And we often talk about wellness and, and mental health and things like that. And, and and I think for the youth, because of the amount of information, I'll call it information glut, they have more pressure on them than because of the amount of connecting. Like when we didn't have social media, you know, we had the, the phone with the long cord, right? So you could talk to one friend on the court until your sister said, get off the phone. I or need your mom phone. picked up the other line on the other, <laughs> yeah. the other room. And I also didn't spend time in my bedroom. And I know that 54 years old, I'm dating myself and, and I'm not trying to be nostalgic and say, but teenagers go in their rooms now and they could live in their rooms. All I have to do is keep giving them food, but they will live in there because their Netflix is in there, their phone's in there, their PlayStation's in there. Um, if we think about it, I used to get angry if my mom wouldn't let me go outside. <laughs> now these students get angry if they're not, if they have to go outside. So there, it's a difference. So I, I just think that I would say to young people, you know, there's a sense of the pressure of needing to know everything. I would take that pressure off of them. You don't need to know everything. Go slow, take your time, get to know people, be open and be humble in your intelligence, right? Be Empty your cup so that more stuff can come in it. Because we have so many young people say, oh, I only listen to this type of music. And I only, I think that it's, you know, they get in political conversations and all these things that they're seeing on the internet that they think they have to attach themselves to. And I would like 14 year olds to be 14 year olds and 16 year olds to be 16 year olds. And the last part I'd say, and this is too, you know, as delicately as I can say it, one of the areas that I would speak to the parents about in, 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 in being aware of this is the sexuality piece, right? Like the exposure to negative dysfunctional ways of thinking around sexuality is all over the internet. It's all over advertising. So again, it would be that open-mindedness to students to say, that's not all true, right? Like, you don't, that's not the truth that you see a post or a TikTok, something or whatever like i'm really disturbed to be honest at the imagery that they are when i see my son flicking through his phone like one it's a lot of detention spans like one second mm -hmm. and then what he's looking at is often highly sexualized and i can see that 
but it's normal. It's a, it's just someone dancing. It's a, to him, it's normal, right? So I think that there's a two, 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 twofold. I think it's letting students be learners, but also I think critical thinking becomes a very essential tool to have as a teenager to be able to sift through what's true and what's not. What should I be doing and what should I not be doing? You know, that that's a critical thinking tool that you dive into things and ask questions and you're 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 not just blindly going into things. I think that's that's very important. So just within that last response, you hit on all of Armbray's pillars that we like our, our mission statement, engage citizens. Yeah critical thinkers and lifelong learners. That was just in your last response. So that is, um, that's pretty cool. Same kind of same mindset and same trajectory. And the advice that you're giving to your son is the advice and is the student that we want to see come out of Ironbray. So I think that's that's pretty cool. And my last question for you, Augie is, and again, you talked about this earlier, the question that you asked us, which is what is your why? I want to ask you what your why is. My why is, I guess someone asked me this before, like what was the biggest influence of your parents? And and that's where my why comes from. I find it hard to do stuff for myself. There's a real community element to what I do. So I recently got the government named me the, the head of a panel on environmental racism. I did it for community engagement. My work with Armbre is community engagement. Um, my work with Acadia Women's Basketball, community engagement among women for them to have an inclusive culture. Um, my work at NSCC Acreley, and I'm doing work which people will find out later around Acreley and connecting to Armbre. And what does it mean to be in a shop? Like, well, you don't have to become a carpenter, but why not? Trades are such a beautiful thing. We all watch A. HGTV. And I remember Steve said to me, he goes, when I'm at the cottage, I, it's the trades people that have the biggest cottages, right? You know? It's true. So, so there's even that community engagement. So I think the why for me is when I die, I would rather have people know that he really put his energy out in the name of students and other educators and community rather than, you know, he was a kind of a smart guy and, and he made lots of money and then just went home and stuck to himself. Uh, my parents didn't do that. I can't do that. And so all of this work that I do and I'm, it's multifaceted it all has a connection which it, it's people work and I, and I think that's the why thank you for everything that you're doing for our community thank you for everything that you're doing for at Armbre it's an exciting time and it's an exciting as an alumni of Armbre it's an exciting direction that we're going in and it's going to be cool to see where we are in 5, 10, 15 years so thank you well and I want to throw the thanks back to the Armbre parents the Armbre administration the Armbre teachers it's been a pleasure um, to work with the school um, and to see the energy and see where we're going. But I did really want to thank all the people that were willing to trust me being on the team uh, and, and helping out because even in my small way, there's people doing much more important things than me. I'm just one little drop in a whole bucket, but, but I enjoy being in the bucket. <laughs> Thanks, Augie. Thanks, man. On the next episode, I will be talking to Dr. Michael Unger, the founder and director of the Resilience Research Center at Dalhousie University. We will chat about his relationship to Armbre and building student resilience. And remember, be kind, work hard.